But which is the right direction? The right direction for us is the one that will lead to an improvement in the quality of life of our people. Among the fundamental infrastructure requirements identified by our new administration in 2016 were roads and electrification, not only because these are among the basic requirements of potential investors, but because these are also essential to our investment in human resources. Better roads mean better access to health and education facilities, and lighting provides new opportunities for our people to achieve their potential. Over the last two years, nearly 3,000 miles of roads have been constructed or upgraded, with priority given to least developed regions such as Chen and Bhutan. Some of the steps we have taken, which may not seem significant to observers, make a great difference to the lives of our people. Before I conclude, I would like to invite all our friends to join us in our journey. Our journey is not a simple journey, it's a venture. You're listening to a special version of the Insight Myanmar podcast, which covers the fallout from the military coup and the democratic resistance. During this crisis, we're not only ramping up the production of our podcast episodes, but also our blog and other social media platforms as well. So we would like to invite you to check these out along with signing up for our regular newsletter. All of our other projects have been paused indefinitely so we can focus entirely on this emergency. But for now, let's get into our show. Sunflower follows the sun like a dog, follows its owner. Superstition is the antidote to a feeble mind. expert who's going to be taking us through the history and the current predicament facing Myanmar's energy sector. So, Guillaume, thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so, my name is Guillaume Delongre. I used to be a researcher and a advisor to the uh, Myanmar Ministry of Electricity and Energy. Um, I was in Napidaw for about two years, uh, working on a variety of issues, mostly related to the power sector. 
And um, yeah, that's it. That's about it. I'm really happy to be here today. Excellent. Thank you. So let's sort of jump into the, the background of the situation because uh, many, many of our guests have not been to Myanmar, but uh, I'm sure they can imagine the, the blackouts that uh, those of us who live there faced. But uh, I know that this is a problem that goes back many, many, many decades. So what, what, what was the situation, let's say, you know, uh, approximately post-independence uh, of the energy sector and what trajectory was it on? So the history of access to electricity, access to energy um, in, in Myanmar is very much influenced by the geography of the country and by the political priorities of a Bama-dominated uh, government. So you'll see that in the post-independence times, you had people in Yangon and Mandalay, uh, some of the key cities uh, between those two major cities that would have electricity uh, through generators, through sometimes some dams. Um, but that was about it. And the rest of the country was very much dark, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, and the story of the power sector until the 2000s is really one of very, very, very slow development in a kind of concentric circles way, right? So we start with these key cities and then you start connecting a few villages outside of the, in the suburbs of those key cities and then uh, slowly, slowly expanding in that way throughout the dry zone, through Bago and, and, um, and then around Yangon. Um, and then some also some expansion in the more touristy areas in the 90s. So around Inle Lake, uh, Bagan, those areas. The, the bottom line is that by the time that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, is in power, access to electricity in the country is still extremely low. And the, the main reason for that is that the Tatmado, as long as it was in power, showed that it wasn't really interested in developing access to electricity to much of the country. I mean, we see basically a stagnating number of electricity connections um, throughout the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The, the, the number of new customers is growing very, very slowly. Um, and only in specific areas, right? Really only in the lowlands. By the late 2000s, um, Tan Shui and then, in, uh, and then uh, Tainsein start thinking, okay, uh, we need to make up for this. And so you start seeing a centralization of electrification and uh, starting to build more generation capacity, starting building new dams, bringing in more investment, including from China, uh, but not only. Nevertheless, by the time that Myanmar starts really expanding access to electricity across the country, the country is far behind all of its neighbors, right? By the time that Myanmar starts electrifying, uh, even Cambodia, Laos, uh, but also, of course, Thailand, India are far ahead of where um, Myanmar is. And so there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, and what we see in the time between the, the late 2000s and the coup is a very dramatic, very rapid expansion of electricity production capacity and the number of connections, right? We go from a few thousand new connections every year to 400,000 on average 
during the NLD times. So during the NLD times, you had about 400,000 new customers every year. That's a massive expansion that sort of follows also the expansion of like rural roads, for example, right? We had this major infrastructure push that started during the Tainzain years and then uh, continued during the NLD years. So I, I just want to jump on that. Is there a political, uh, or should I say, is there a democratic element to this? Because it, it seems like the, the expansion of the infrastructure only came as soon as there was, uh, for whatever value it had, an electoral process, a, a way of holding politicians to account for their actions and inactions. Um, was there just suddenly more awareness of the public demand for these things? Or was there something else driving it? I think that to the extent that this electrification and energy drive that starts more or less in 2006, 2007, and uh, gains steam in, um, in 2011 and really reaches a very high rate of change in, uh, in 2016. Th that change started before democratization. I think it reflected a change within the Tatmadaw leadership, uh, a change of perspective um, in the mind of Tan Shui about what was the role of the Tatmadaw in terms of developing the country. I don't know what exactly prompted that change. I think what we see in the late 2000s is a, a change of approach within the Tamadol, a change of vision that the Tamadol should perhaps play some role in developing the country, that it was not just about guaranteeing, you know, safety from internal enemies and safety from protection from external enemies, um, protecting the sovereignty of, of the country at all costs, you know, but an, a starting very small <laughs> budding idea that maybe the authority that was governing this country had a role to play in actually developing its infrastructure, which may seem obvious um, at, from an external point of view, but when you look at how the Tatmadaw behaved for um, decades when it came to infrastructure development, it was actually quite a new idea. We have traces from uh, a long time ago, um, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, when you look at the, at the press uh, at the time, there was this very explicit message coming from the Tatmadaw, from the junta, that the responsibility to bring electricity to people was, number one, the responsibility of the people themselves, their village authorities, the municipalities, and perhaps maybe sometimes uh, township and district authorities. And that was it. it. It was not seen as something that the central government should be involved in, uh, in, in, any, in any way. Right. So there's this change in the late 2000s that may be caused by the fact that Tan Shui was really um, committed to this uh, road towards democracy and that he's, he believed that maybe it would be a good way to increase the popularity of the Tatmadaw um, from the perspective of a, a Tatmadaw that would be involved in politics through the USDP and things like that. Um, perhaps. I, I don't have uh, clear evidence about what drove that change. I think that what we see then under Tain Sein and uh, the NLD is indeed a very strong push, a change of mentality among the ruling elites of Myanmar that the central government does have a role to play and actually a complete reversal 
in their perspective where they actually started centralizing everything. And so expanding access to electricity became a, a, a monopoly almost of the central government, um, not of the union government. And, and they actually took those powers away from local governments, giving a few crumbs here and there to state and regional governments saying, well, if you want to build uh, a, a power plant that is be below a certain threshold of capacity and that it isn't going to um, be connected to the national grid, yes, you can do that. That's in the Constitution, in the 2008 Constitution. Um, but in effect, that was actually really nothing compared to the amount of power that was suddenly centralized um, in Naypyidaw um, under Tainsein and then under uh, Aung San Suu Kyi when it came to the energy sector. So let's take it back a step. So you're saying that the, the, the Tamadol was saying that it is the responsibility of local governments and the communities themselves to provide electricity. I'm just, I'm just curious, what was the game plan you know, no local community, no village certainly is in the is in the position to be able to build an entire power station for itself. Uh, what did they think the people were going to do? How were they going to achieve this? So the, the way that it was once explained to me by a, a senior civil servant is that they called this supply side driven electrification. And what that actually meant was that the central, the union government and state and regional governments were not interested in connecting more villages to the national grid than there was capacity connected, right? So basically, we don't want to increase demand more than we can supply. But at the same time, they weren't investing nearly enough in supply. So <laughs> they weren't building new power plants or anything like that. And so basically what this supply side driven um, electrification means is we're only going to connect new areas of the country once we have added a new power plant, a new dam, a new gas plant, or something like that, right? Now, because they weren't adding that new generation capacity, that meant, well, let's slow down the electrification of the country as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Because if we add new people to the national grid, that reduces the quality of supply for the people already connected, right? You get more power cuts because you have to share the existing amount of power with a greater number of people. So in, in effect, what this really meant was that the union government was actually trying to actively slow down the expansion of access to modern energy um, across Myanmar in order to protect its own supply um, in the uh, Bama lowlands. Um, yeah. So, so just to clarify then, there was no intention of these communities electrifying themselves. They, they didn't actually seriously consider the possibility that these communities would solve that problem. They were just expected to wait in, in darkness until such time as the government decided to expand. Yes, or to come up with their own uh, off-grid solutions. So for example, what the Ministry of Industry did at one point was that it would <laughs> supply fuel for diesel generators. So I would say like, you're a village and you want to get electricity. Neither we nor you are willing or able to connect your village to the national grid. So here's what we're going to do. You are going to purchase a diesel generator. You're going to build the lines within your village. 
And then you can apply for some support from us, the central government, and we can, if we decide, <laughs> if we agree to it, we might supply you with some fuel to power that generator. That was the extent of the involvement of uh, the central of the union government in supporting um, access to electricity in uh, in the rural parts of the country. But so, hang on, let, let me just logic my way <laughs> through this. Surely, even if the villagers have somehow managed to afford the generator and the importation of the generator and have yeah. somehow managed to overcome the fact that they need outside expertise to lay those power lines, um, you know, moving past that, surely the fuel that goes into a small-scale diesel generator like that is significantly more expensive per megawatt than actually operating a, a power station. Like, surely this is the, the central government saying effectively, A, yes, I will support the electrification of your village, and B, I will do it in the least possible cost-efficient way for myself. Yes. But I think that you need to understand that the you need to see development and access to infrastructure from the point of view of the Tamadol when it's in power. And I think that can inform our understanding today also. The, the Tamadol doesn't, didn't see, let's say, before, uh, before democratization, before the transition, the Tamadol never saw itself as an agent, as a proactive agent of development of the country. If, if, it, if it did, their failure to build electricity in Myanmar would not be visible from space, right? Like <laughs> Myanmar is one of those countries that, like South Korea, you look at, you look at a map of at night of Myanmar, and you look at India, you have lights everywhere, right? Then you enter into Chin State or Zagang, totally dark, totally, totally dark. And then you you go into uh, moving from from west to east. Then you get you see Mandalay. There's lights there. You see a few villages and, and some lights between Mandalay and Yangon. There's that there's that that bright spot there. And then as soon as you're back into Shan State, uh, Karen, Mon State, Tanintari, it's again totally dark. And then you pass the border, and literally at the border, suddenly it bright lights, right? Because it's Thailand, it's Laos, it's China. Right? So, if the Tamador was really concerned about access to electricity to infrastructure development. They had about 60 years to show that they uh, thought so, <laughs> and they didn't. So I, I don't think that the Tamadoa ever considered that, you know, that what you're pointing to a very valid point, which is um, it doesn't make sense, right? Why didn't they just build the grid in the way that every other successful country in the world, including all the countries around Myanmar that have been massively successful, at giving access to modern energy, right? Um, including a lot of non-democratic countries. You don't need to have democracy to build access to modern infrastructure. Um, they, they, they just have not been particularly interested in that aspect of governance, uh, in my view. Um, and, and Tan Shui realized that in the later years of his rule, and realized that if the Tatmadaw was ever going to be to transition to a democratic force as a political party that could actually gain seats and, and, and be powerful in the Pituluto, 
um, it would have to start reckoning with the fact that people want access to roads because they want easier transportation. They don't want to be completely locked out of the rest of the country as soon as it rains, right? People mm -hmm. want to have access to cell phones. People want to have access to electricity, uh, to clean water, um, to healthcare. Like those are very, very essential basic building blocks that the Tamadol throughout its uh, rule of Myanmar completely ignored. It was just not part of the their definition of what governance uh, was supposed to be. So, okay, so you've raised a very important point there. You don't need democracy to have electrification. And of course, the, the reasoning there is not just the, the obvious stuff. I mean, when we look at things like the internet and, and telecommunications infrastructure that requires electricity, there are massive economic advantages to that. But of course, the Damodor were very interested in minimizing the people's access to telecommunication for a very long time. But when we look at industries, electrification generates profit because those industries operate significantly better. Uh, factories can operate after dark. Um, you know, machines can be used and so on, especially in Myanmar, a country where the majority of the wealth uh, or the largest portion of the economic pie was coming from mineral extraction. And then the second largest portion of the pie comes from uh, textiles and fabrics. Both of these industries benefit immensely from having electrification. So did that not factor into the thinking of, of the military to say like, we could generate wealth for ourselves by guaranteeing electrification? I think that whenever you speak to people who are um, well informed about the state economic enterprises of the Ministry of Industry, for example, um, they will tell you that these state-run industrial activities were never really designed from the point of view of profitability, right? That profitability was not the objective. The objectives were Number one, having some industries in country so that you could produce some things and be more sovereign in terms of your economic production of certain certain key goods. Secondly, it was about employment, right? As you see in a lot of um, Soviet countries, um, which Myanmar was not to be clear, but it's a similar mechanism. Um, so they saw it from the point of view of sovereignty and employment. And from that point of view, access to electricity and making these uh, these factories more productive really wasn't a priority. It was not obvious from the point of view of the people who were managing these state-owned um, factories. So I, I don't think that... I think that in order to understand the Tatmadol's economic thinking, you have to understand that it's first and foremost based on extractive industries, not productive activities. And, and those are very, very different economic models. Um, the the Tatmadol's, most of its activities are based on extracting natural resources and extracting rents from those natural resources. Ex extracting these natural resources, you can do that without a massive national grid, without building massive dams. Um, it's pretty simple. You put on a generator. Maybe if you want, if you want, uh, you can add a like a water turbine if you're in the mountains of Kaya or, or Shan or whatever. Um, it doesn't require a particularly complex logistical chain. I, mean, I, th I think the challenge for the Tatmadaw has always been to transition from this extractives-oriented economic thought to 
the fact that Myanmar has actually under Tainsane and then under um, Aung San Suu Kyi transitioned towards much more productive activities um, and, and reduces dependence on um, natural resource extraction. Um, and those activities require a lot more modern energy. Energy is a key element of the cost of production. But it's a completely different aspect of economic thought, right? Uh, it's got a completely different economic thought, perspective on the economy than where can we build a new mine? Uh, where can we extract more gas? That's very different from how can we improve the productivity of our factories or reduce their costs or be more internationally competitive? I don't know, just what you're saying about the, the Dumbledore's economic thinking, it, it just reminds me of the possibly apocryphal tale of... Um, Friedman visiting China when he, he sees a hundred people with shovels digging up a field and he says, well, why, why aren't you using tractors? And they say, well, if we use a tractor, we could only employ two people. If we use shovels, we can employ a hundred people. And he says, well, then give everybody a spoon and you can employ 10,000 people. Um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous when you take it to its logical conclusion. You know, it's not, it's not sustainable, but yes. uh, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I think I, I think that the you have to understand that a, a country without access to energy in, in in terms of electricity cannot in the same way that a country without access to clean water and and food you, you can't build much on top of that right and so I think that to a large extent the, the fact that the Tamadol ignored electrification for decades. In, in many ways, constrained the development of Myanmar's economy. It focused Myanmar's economy on extractive industries and um, low productivity state-owned um, uh, manufacturing. And, and there, there was a major transformation to be done there. Now, now, that is not to say that automation and all of that, and that's a much broader discussion about what's the place for automation, what's the place for increased productivity um, in rural economies um, in, in transition phases, right? You need to provide employment indeed to a lot of people who are going to lose jobs as you modernize your economy and you shift away from um, agriculture towards industry or and or services. Um, nevertheless, the Tamil trapped Myanmar's economy and Myanmar's workforce in these deeply unproductive activities for decades and that started to change very, very rapidly um, in the what I would nickname the, the failed decade of transition, right? The, the 2011 to 2021. Um, that started to change quite significantly. And you started seeing some very structural reforms of how state-owned enterprises functioned, uh, reforms of the Ministry of Electricity and Energy. You started seeing a lot of World Bank funding going into electrification. Um, a lot of people started seeing, okay, the first step towards developing Myanmar is helping it to catch up in terms of access to electricity. We need to put light bulbs everywhere in all households and, and we need to give that basic amenity of modern life um, to, to, to across the country. And then we can start focusing on other things, but we need to start with that because the, the country is so far behind every other ASEAN country, so far behind the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, um, and I, I think that the, the NLD uh, and the, the the NLD was in somewhat of a conflict with the bureaucracy because it tried to change that mentality quite radically 
uh, from this extractives and supply side driven electrification to let's just build power lines everywhere. Let's connect everyone. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see. Right. Uh, and then we'll also build more dams, we'll build more solar and we'll build all this ad added generation. So there was some friction there that I, I attribute to this change in mentality, this change in perception um, within the bureaucracy that was going from having military leaders, uh, military leadership to having civilian NLD leadership. They had to transition from this old school way of seeing to this new way of seeing that let's all catch up as fast as possible. Mm. So then let's let's talk about that. Um, you know, you, you talk about this this decade of failed transition. I usually refer to it as the period of faux democracy. Um, what actually happened in terms of the expansion of the electrical grid? Like what changes did people experience within urban centers and what changes did people experience in rural areas? You saw a massive push. Um, to put it to put it simply, in between 2006 and 2010, so during those four years, at the start of the big electrification drive, um, the junta was adding uh, about 100,000 new people to the grid uh, every year. After 2011, that starts to increase, to grow, to grow, to grow. And suddenly, by the time the NLD is in power, you're adding about 400,000 people every year, right? That is just an amount of investment in infrastructure that was partly supported by external uh, donors, but to be honest, first and foremost, funded by regional governments. I mean, that was a massive drive. To, to yeah. any other countries' uh, electrification, so we have a reference for what 400,000 people a year is? 400,000 people a year is... What it means is that between 2019 and 2021, for example, simply in terms of what was used from the World Bank funding, that's a $400 million uh, loan, they brought electricity to about 2.7, 2.8 million people, right? It's a, it's a huge drive. I think that the only infrastructure project that can compare during these years is the expansion of rural roads, which were, which was which was absolutely massive across the country, um, and and had a deep impact on rural economies. So, what was achieved during that time was was absolutely remarkable. Um, if you also look at let's say okay, four hundred thousand new connections a year, th um, that's that's more than were added of new connections for the entire decade of the nineteen eighties. And more than what was added in the 1990s, right? It, it was just a completely a change of paradigm that suddenly electricity was coming to communities in the country. And there was this sense of excitement that you could feel it whenever you went to communities and you asked them, what is the one thing that is going to change your, your life that you're most looking forward to? And you would just have like hundreds of people screaming at you, electricity. So there was this expectation, this optimism that it's coming, it's coming, it's finally coming. We've been waiting for it for so long. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a, a remarkable thing that today is is pretty much dead in the water. Yeah, but so 
like a, a follow-up to that, uh, what was the experience for people like? Because if you're in the urban centers, it's a bit different. If you're in the rural areas, you didn't have electricity and now you do. It might not be particularly reliable, it might not be particularly consistent, but at least you have it. Um, but let's contrast that to people living in Mandalay, Yangon, Nepido, places like this, where they already had electricity. Did the reliability of that electricity supply improve for them as well over this period of time? No, electricity supply uh, quality uh, deteriorated for, for many people during that time. And I think for anyone who lived in Myanmar in the last five years, we all feared the power cuts of the hot season, right? It, it could just get really, really brutal uh, and really hot uh, for, for those who didn't have a generator, which was the overwhelming majority of the population. So, um, no, the, the quality of supply definitely deteriorated uh, in part because the demand was growing much faster than was expected. Um, and because electricity has that sp is, a, is a particular kind of service, it's, it's what's called an experience good. So basically, if you ask someone who doesn't have electricity, who hasn't lived an, an electrified life yet, you ask them the day that you get electricity, how are you going to use it? What kind of appliances are you, are you going to buy? How is it going to change your daily schedule? They'll tell you something, right? And then they get electrified and you ask them again that same question, but now um, in retrospect, how has it changed your life? How has it changed your lifestyle, your daily schedule? What appliances have you purchased? And you realize that once people get electricity, it opens up a world of possibilities for them that they hadn't even foreseen before. Um, and, and so that their electricity demand is usually much higher than what they had expected before. Mm -hmm if it's affordable. And so that, I think, created a situation in which the demand for electricity across Myanmar was much higher than uh, what had been forecast. And at the same time, the authorities were way too slow at adding new, new generation capacity in the country, uh, too slow to add new gas, new dams, new solar, new whatever your, your, pick your poison. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so actually, I want to ask something, because I think this is very important. The, the demand, the increase in demand, do we know whether the increase in demand was driven by industry or whether it was driven by private citizens wanting to use appliances or whether both of those just skyrocketed? No, the, the increase in demand was driven by a surge in, in residential demand. And, um, okay. in households consuming far more electricity than, than was expected, um, including a lot in, in cities. You started seeing parts of the, all the major cities, uh, because electricity was so, so cheap, people were leaving their air cons on while they were out at work. Um, the, it was very common to, to have very wasteful kinds of behaviors with, like, with electricity because it was so dirt cheap. It was one, one of the lowest tariffs for electricity in the world. Um, so, yeah, what, what drove the, the higher demand was not as much industry as much as it was um, residential demand. Yeah. Do we understand what it was that was that was driving these? Like, is it mainly air conditioning that people are using or is it other appliances like fridge and uh, heating appliances, water heaters and things like this? The spread of modern appliances in urban areas drove the, drove the demand. Uh, the rise in demand. So uh, any appliance, but of course the more power-hungry ones were aircon, fridges, um, 
th- those were the, the two big ones that, that drove uh, electricity demand uh, at that time. And, and, still, and still does. I mean, aircon is the, first, is the first thing that once you've purchased, you know, your rice cooker, your TV, um, your, you know, you can charge your phone. Um, the thing that is going to be that first luxury item that is going to make your life significantly more comfortable is that aircon. But aircon, of course, is something that consumes a lot of electricity. And the problem was that you had a lot of people in the country investing in aircon devices because they saw it as a high fixed cost, right? It's an initial purchase, but then actually operating it would be cheap because electricity was so cheap in the country. Um, and so there was that mixed um, mixed messages, let's say, in terms of price signals. And that changed afterwards in 2019 when the prices increased significantly. So, so I want to move on to that, actually. You've uh, mentioned to me in the past that the electricity sector... Uh, was was running at a at a deficit basically it was not really profitable and simultaneously you're telling me that the price of electricity was just you know so incredibly low um, in you know across the country what was the reasoning for this well it's never popular in any country to raise energy prices right and and very often you'll actually get riots social unrest when the price of energy is increased in ways that are either not progressive enough or that affect one community more than another and things like that, right? So it is a politically very sensitive um, issue. The NLD was aware of this. Everyone knew since at least 2014 that prices needed to be adjusted. When they tried to adjust the prices in 2014, there were protests and so the Tainsane administration backed down and they only increased prices on industries at the time. But that only kicked the can down the road, which is something that happens everywhere in the world, whether it's democracies or authoritarian regimes. There's never a very strong political incentive to increase prices for energy. Um, Every year, every month, I would hear uh, when I was in Napidaw, people saying we need to increase prices, we need to increase prices, but no one seemed to know how to do it, um, how to do it in a progressive way, how to do it in a way that wouldn't torpedo the popularity of the NLD. Hmm. And so that just kept being postponed. And by 2018, 2019, the, the Ministry of Electricity and Energy was losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year in electricity subsidies, effectively. So that meant that basically the government was spending more on subsidizing electricity, mostly to more wealthy, rich, more wealthy um, uh, urban customers than it was spending on education, for example. Um, It was spending more on electricity than almost anything other than the defense spending. So, so effectively, it meant that the country was subsidizing the wealthy, urban, or upper middle class people in the cities who were using their air cons and their fridges and all that. Right? So th- there was this real imbalance that ended up being addressed in June 2019, but it took a very long time and they really waited until the last minute, let's say. So hang on, so let's, let's look at the economic model here because the state does not own 
the majority of the power generation infrastructure. Those are, are still technically private companies who collect the revenues from the people directly and then they on sort of the, they pay through their taxes uh, a, a portion of that money to the government. So the government doesn't actually own the infrastructure. The government doesn't actually set the price of electricity. Is that correct? Well, so you have two things. So first of all, let's let's take a step back. For, for those who don't know about the power sector, we divide it into three big blocks. There's generation, transmission, and distribution. Generation is the production of electricity. Transmission is the high voltage cables that you see crossing fields you know, in the countryside, uh, connecting towns, connecting major power generation to uh, where the demand is, right? And then you have distribution, and those are the lines that you see within a city that are connecting your house to a local transformer, right? So we, we look at these three different blocks as separate because they have different economics. In the case of Myanmar, the way that it works is that electricity can be produced either by companies that sell electricity to the government or by the government itself. A majority of electricity is produced by private companies and then it gets sold to the government and then the government sells it to you, to, to, to simplify. Um, a portion of that of the electricity is also produced by state-owned dams and state-owned gas plants, and then that also gets sold to you. The final consumer price is the same for everyone, every grid-connected uh, consumer in the country. Um, and so if there's any discrepancy between the price at which the companies are selling electricity to the government and the price at which the government is selling electricity to you, then that's the subsidy. That's the gap uh, between the cost of supply and the cost and the, and the, the income per unit that they, um, that they collect. Right. So it's, it's not so much that the electricity generators behave as completely independent free enterprises who pay taxes. The government makes itself an obligatory middleman between generating enterprises yes. and the ultimate consumer. That's correct. And so here I'm only talking specifically about the national grid system. Um, there are other parts of the country, if you look at, like, for example, Changtung, the capital of Eastern Shan, or if you look at Putao, uh, you have some cities like that in the country that um, are not connected to the national grid and have their own system going on with their own generation and own distribution system. Um, but for everyone who's connected to the national grid, yeah, everything, whether it's produced by a private sector a stakeholder or by a, a government um, a, a stakeholder, everything gets channeled through this one uh, state-owned enterprise that purchases all that electricity and then dispatches it to other state-owned enterprises that are going to sell it to you as, as the final user, right? So it, it all goes, it's, so it's fully vertically integrated in that sense. Mm -hmm. So that allows us to move forward into the, the meat of the issue, and that is post-coup. So as of the current situation, the electricity grid of Myanmar, the entire pie effectively, um, except for the, these ones like Buddha that you've mentioned, I presume, is controlled by the the junta government. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And the people who want electricity, when they pay their electricity bills, are handing money over to that junta government. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So clearly the situation is... Um, 
Yeah, is a little bit extreme. So, all right, can you can you tell me about what changes have happened uh, as far as the grid is concerned and as far as the economics of the grid is concerned since the coup? Let's look at what was happening in the few years right before the coup in the energy sector. At that time, it was pretty clear that there was going to be some kind of energy crisis because, as I said before, the electricity demand was growing faster than expected. And whether it was the Tainsein or NLD administrations were not adding enough generation capacity to the system. And so that gap kept growing. And there was a point where it was going to reach a crunch, let's say. Some decisions were made in 2019 and 2020 that were designed as emergency measures to avert this crisis. So in 2019, as I said, they increased the electricity prices, which was really important because they were at that point losing about $500 million in electricity subsidies. They commissioned a bunch of emergency rental gas power plants, some of which would be running on imported gas from the Middle East. And then in 2020, they commissioned um, 29 solar farms, solar plants uh, to be dispatched kind of all over the country. Now, what the coup did was that it's not that it triggered a crisis. The coup canceled out the emergency measures that were decided by uh, the NLD administration. Because what happened was, as soon as the coup happened, the solar companies that were going to build the solar plants were thinking, well, the country risk just went way up. And we don't know if we can import materials into the country, if we don't know if we can bring um, workers into the country to actually uh, build the power plants. This all seems very tricky. On top of that, we agreed to sell electricity to the government at a certain price that were quite low, very competitive prices. But now that there's massive instability in the country, well, we don't really think that our true cost of producing that electricity is reflected in that pre-coup price, right? It's sort of like if before the coup, you had agreed to import um, a bunch of bananas into Myanmar, at a given price and sell it to the government. But then after the coup, you realize, well, there's a high chance that my container full of bananas is going to be uh, stuck at the port for a long time and I may lose my shipment entirely, right? Or it might be confiscated. Um, or someone, I may, I may have to bribe a bunch of people in order to get it to, get it to my uh, cus customer. Or the, the government may decide, well, I'm going to take your bananas, but I'm not going to pay for it. So that's an added risk, and that risk was not taken into account. And the junta was saying, well, we want to buy that electricity. We want to, you to go ahead with those projects according to the original pre-coup terms. And the companies, of course, were like, there's no way we're not doing that. So that's a thousand megawatts of solar that just disappears overnight and doesn't get, get built. Then you have a, a Chinese and Hong Kongese company called V-Power, that had started producing a lot of the emergency gas plants that I just mentioned. Now, that company says, well, we believe that the Ministry of Electricity and Energy is probably not going to be able to pay us 
long term for the electricity that we're supplying to it. And so we, we prefer stopping production right now rather than take the risk of producing and not getting paid. Combined with that with the fact that international gas prices were increasing, and so the company V-Power was importing gas and at a higher price, but selling electricity that was produced by burning that gas at a, a fixed price to the, to the government. So the burden of that increased global price of gas was on the company, not the ministry. So that company decides, well, we're going to shut down a lot of our power plants in the country, including two big, big power plants around Yangon, another one in Chaopiu in Rakhine, um, and another one, we don't know whether it was in uh, Minjan or Magui. So that hap- those two things combined sort of is a major uh, blow dealt to the power sector at the time. And now on top of that, you start having attacks on the power lines, right? Now, I don't know if some of your listeners might remember this, but in last August and then in November, there there were reports of attacks on power lines that connected some dams in Kaya State. Um, And anyone who follows the situation in Myanmar pretty closely will know that Kaya State is a hotspot of the confrontation between PDFs and, um, and the junta. Now, some PDFs blew up key power lines that connected three dams to Naypyidaw with the explicit purpose of disconnecting, of reducing the power supply to Naypyidaw. Of course, that's not really how a power grid operates because the electricity, as soon as it's injected into the system, kind of runs free. So it's not really like a a pipeline or water. It's a bit different. Nevertheless, what happened is that they blew up those power lines, and they prevented any electrical engineers from coming to repair those power lines, and they're still preventing them to this day. So that took out another chunk of power generation from from the grid. So basically, today, the power supply in Myanmar is lower than in 2017. It's about at the same level as 2016. It's a dramatic drop in power generation in the country, which is why today I think the country that you could compare it most accurately to is probably Lebanon, right? in terms of a complete collapse of the generation uh, production uh, capacity. A few caveats to that. First of all, uh, a p- bunch of people are saying now that, oh, in the last week, and we are recording today on the uh, 4th of June. In the last week, electricity supply in Yangon has suddenly become much better. Now, the reason for that is in two, two parts. First of all, the monsoon has returned, and so the dams are starting to fill up. And so there's going to be an increase in quality of supply over the next few months. Second of all, Napidol has actively decided to channel a lot more of the power that was being dispatched to rural areas, to Yangon, because the probably because the discontent, the, le- the level of anger in Yangon was starting to uh, be really uh, problematic. Um, and so they are, the better quality of supply that you're seeing in Yangon in the last week is at the direct expense of uh, secondary and tertiary cities in the rest of the country. That, that's the situation of the electricity se- sector post-coup. I think that looking ahead, 
it's going to remain, every dry season is going to remain very, very tricky, um, at least for the next two, three years, at least. And I think that the objective of reaching 100% access to electricity and enough power for all of those new customers on the grid, which used to be 2030, that deadline is most likely going to be missed um, because of a lack of funding, a lack of interest of the junta in electrification, and also the fact that very few companies today are willing to cooperate to work with the um, the junta MOEE. There, there are going to be some companies that are going to jump in, um, but uh, nowhere near the level of the pre-coup times. And so a lot of dam projects now are completely uh, suspended or abandoned or in some kind of limbo state. Um, a lot of solar projects are now completely abandoned or suspended. Um, and the country risk in general has increased. So if there are new projects that are built, it'll be at a higher price to the government. So an important question then is, now that we've gone through this electrification, does the junta grasp the importance of this sector or are they still willing to abandon uh, electrification and just let the country sink into darkness again uh, because they see it as a secondary concern? I think we would have to speak to people who are who have a good understanding of the mentality of, uh, of Minang Lang and, and so in. Um, I think that in the past, let's say until 2011, 2015, during that time, you either had a grid connection and you had, let's say, an okay supply of electricity, or you didn't have the grid at all. That's a different situation from having a lot of people in Myanmar today who have a grid connection in their village, they're in their household, and who are not going to get any electricity, right? It's, it's different to not have something than to be given something and then being that thing being taken away from you. Mm -hmm. I think this reasoning can apply to the coup in general, right? And, and to why the resistance to the coup has been so strong. It's very different to not have something than to have something taken away from you. Um, and so if the junta is smart, which I wouldn't necessarily bet on at this stage, but who knows, um, they would be aware that electricity supply is one of the things that it's, it's the government being in your life in a very direct way, right? Electricity supply, when it is uh, supplied by the government, if there is electricity supply or there is an electricity supply, it is a metric of whether the government is performing well or not at, a, at your very personal level in terms of supplying your own house. Which is why it can get a politically very sensitive uh, in, a, in a lot of countries. So I think if the junta is smart, they will understand that they need to work on this as fast as possible. And I think that there have been indications that they are looking for new partners, including in China and in Thailand, to work with them as soon as possible to start building new generation capacity because it's going to be very hard to normalize themselves and to be seen as a legitimate governing force of Myanmar if they are utterly unable to provide this very basic aspect of development and modern life. Mm. 
So the question then, because I know that reports uh, have been made that the junta are in fact using the lack of electricity as a punitive tool to try and sort of get people under their control again. You know, almost like, well, if you want the electricity back, you have to accept the military boot heel. Um, is that uh, is that indicative of of their continued attitude towards electricity? And uh, if so, do you think it's uh, it's going to be successful? Uh, do people need the electricity badly enough? I think that to, I think that electricity is an essential service, and if you don't have electricity, your life can be significantly worse. Right. It, it's much, much harder to it's it's not a, a superfluous thing. It's not a bonus. It's you need to have access to drinkable water and you need to have electricity as a second priority to water and food just in order to have lights, to, in order to have access to communication um, very often in order to be able to work and things like that. So. I think that the challenge for organizations such as the NUG, for example, is if you keep asking people to stop paying their bills, um, which is which has been up until now a very effective way of depriving the regime of ver very needed resources. There is a point where it affects your life in a very real way. And so the regulations even pre-coup was if you don't pay after three months, you get disconnected. And so I think we're seeing a mix of the junta sometimes punishing certain townships. We've seen that in certain parts of Yangon that have been, let's say, more active in the resistance. So North Oklapa um, and Shwepita um, uh, and Langtaya, uh, those areas have been targeted with power cuts. But I think the majority of people who are feeling the pain of this and who are being disconnected, they're not being disconnected because of direct retaliation by the junta. They're being disconnected because they chose to boycott and to to boycott the uh, the junta and to not provide provide those funds to to the regime. Um, it's very tricky uh, to see what's going to be done in the future because. It is relatively simple for the Ministry of Electric Power, as it's now been renamed, to disconnect a whole street, to disconnect a whole ward, a quarter, or uh, or township. It's it's quite easy to do that. Um, so I don't know exactly what their what their approach is going to be. Whether they're going to keep using you know combining um, electricity and uh, internet cutoffs um, to show outages. To target certain areas, as we've we've seen in Zagaing recently and in Magui, it's it's unclear to me. What I can see is that there's also a financial incentive for the MOEE to be much more aggressive, to combine their bill collection efforts with, for example, the GAD, with the police, and sometimes perhaps even with the military, to coerce people into paying because it's becoming this major financial crisis for the uh, Junta uh, Ministry of Electric Power. They are losing, again, hundreds of millions of dollars a year at the, at the current rate. And the question is, will the Junta, will the Tatmadol be willing to bail them out at some point or not? The big picture is that in the early days of the coup, we saw a complete collapse of 
of, of the government, of the bureaucracy, right, of the actual uh, capacity of an authority to exert control over um, over Myanmar. So I think that in and this leads me to a kind of secondary port, point and kind of a, a tangent, but I think it's a, an important one from an energy perspective. The early reporting that the Tatmadaw has seized control of Myanmar after the coup, I think, was not accurate. I think that what we saw was the Tatmadaw has seized control of um, of Napidaw and had decapitated the NLD. But for anyone who was in Myanmar at that time, it was pretty much a lawless area. And um, you could, would see soldiers sometimes and there was repression and all that. But when you see that, for example, in Yangon, they in, in uh, February, March, April, the MOEE, the, the ministry, was able to collect 2% of the expected electricity bill revenue, right? So that's a 98% collapse in bill collection. In, in Mandalay, it was 3%. In the, in the rest of the country, it was about 20%. So there's just a complete collapse in the ability of the ministry to implement its policies and to enforce compliance. And then there's the whole boycott that begins where people think, well, I haven't been paying my bills up until now. And I have a very strong incentive to not want to fund the junta. I don't want to give them money. And so I'm not going to pay my bills. The NUG supported that and advocated for that publicly. Um, a lot of activists supported that. And then that became a really major part of the CDM movement. I would even argue that the boycott of electricity bills was one of the most successful parts of the civil disobedience movement, and it continues to this day. Of course, after a while, people were forced to pay. You saw bill collectors coming with GAD officers, with policemen, and forcing people to pay. And if they didn't pay, they just got uh, physically disconnected from the power grid. Nevertheless, to this day, every month, whereas before the ministry would be able to collect about 98% of the owed bills, today that's about 55 to 60% every month. Right? And so then it, people are basically waiting for the last minute. They're waiting for the soldiers to be at their doorstep or for the engineers to be there to disconnect them to, to pay. And they're, they're really dragging their feet as much as possible. So this continues, it is still depriving the ministry of a lot of resources. And I wonder how, how the junta is going to be able to compensate for this financially. They have the financial resources to do it, but will they have the willingness to bail out uh, the, the, um, the Ministry of Electricity and Energy, the Ministry of Electric Power, sorry. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's an interesting economic question here. I mean, let's say the, the military goes out and they just start disconnecting houses left, right, and center. And as a result of that, so, okay, so it's a two-way question, really. Number one, would the fact that so many homes are being disconnected then mean that the non-disconnected homes start receiving a more reliable energy supply? And or does it mean that the junta can then turn around to the energy suppliers and say, look, demand has gone down. Therefore, I expect you to lower your supply and I'm going to give you less money. So the, the second part of the question um, is, is a very interesting one. The, the government 
and the, by the government, I mean in the abstract, like the Myanmar government, uh, the, the Ministry of Electric Power, purchases electricity at a, a contract price that is based on what's called a power purchase agreement. So that's a contract between the electric power generation enterprise, uh, that's a component of the ministry, and the company that is generating the electricity. Within that contract, there is usually a standard clause that says that the governmental side is obligated to purchase a minimum amount of electricity from that power plant. The reason for that is it's supposed to, th these power plants are only uh, financially viable if they produce uh, a certain amount every day because a lot of power plants are not good at, you know, producing a lot suddenly and then producing less and anyway. So it gives security to the company that the guarantee that there will be demand for their service um, every day. What that means also is that if the ministry wanted to reduce its costs by reducing the amount of electricity that it is purchasing, there is a floor on, there is a lower limit on its ability to do that because it is still contractually obligated to purchase a very significant share of electricity every day from these power suppliers. So that, that, that constrains the ability of reducing costs for, for the ministry. I also think that it's not in the interest of households to be disconnected. Uh, it, it would really affect their, their lifestyles. I also think it's not in the interest of bill collectors and uh, township officers and all these civil servants to implement disconnections on a broad scale because we're seeing even this week um, a bill collector was assassinated um, in broad daylight and this has been happening all the time, right? We see on average about 20 to 25 attacks on MOEE offices or MOEE staff every month. That's almost once a day. Um, so it, there's a precarious balance there that is still being negotiated about how to enforce compliance on one side, but at the same time, um, people not really, not, not wanting to comply at all. Um, but, but also civil servants not wanting to die. So it's a, mm. it's a tricky situation. I mean, it, it's definitely one of these very deep and yet unsung elements of, of the revolution. But will there come a time when what the military is offering is just not enough? I mean, at the moment, unless I'm wrong, we're looking at approximately 12 hours a day of, of electricity uh, supply. So... If, if that supply starts going down, will it get to the point where people say, look, it's just not worth it to me. Like, who cares about the two, two hours of electricity a day that I get? The food is going to spoil in my fridge anyway. My aircon is not going to cool the house anyway. I can't charge my, my computer anyway. You know, is there a fear of that? I don't think so. Um, I think that... Looking at and commenting on Myanmar from an outside perspective, we have to take into account that a, a lot of people, their priority is yeah, like political incentives and, and matter, right? What you believe matters, of course. Um, and the opposition to the coup is massive, overwhelming and sincere. 
at the same time, people have to live, people have to, people still have like uh, family plans, people still have career plans, they still want to grow and develop and all, all of that on, on an individual level, I mean. And I think that the only reason for someone to think, okay, I'm just going to disconnect myself from the grid because what's the point is either someone who is deeply, deeply, deeply politically motivated and willing to take on a very steep cost or someone who has an alternative. Um, so it, whether you have maybe a solar panel on your, on your roof and we're seeing much more demand for solar panels, individual solar panels in Myanmar at the moment, there's a, a real spike in demand. Um, higher demand for battery storage, uh, also, probably we're going to see in villages higher demand for little uh, hydro turbines that you put on a river and things like that, right? Alternatives or solutions that are complementary with the power grid. Um, but I don't know how long electricity supply can remain as politicized as it is right now. Um, mm. It's it, it, because it's so key to, to, to daily life. I mean, once you've lived with electricity and you've bought all those, those appliances, can you really deprive yourself of that? Like, I think among your listeners, if you've lived ever an unelectrified life, it's a very, very different kind of lifestyle, especially in very warm areas. Um, it's, it affects how you eat, it affects how you sleep, everything, how you communicate, everything. So do I think that people will be hesitating to radically change their lifestyle for that? Um, no. And I don't necessarily think that it's the best way to oppose the junta, to be honest. So you, you mentioned these alternatives, uh, and, and we won't spend too long on that, but I'm curious, is there much recourse realistically to, to gain a certain degree of energy independence? I mean, solar panels are first of all expensive, no matter where you are. The, the actual panel itself still costs quite a bit of money plus the difficulties with importation. Batteries, I did look into that when I was I was in Yangon a few years ago. What I was basically being told is, no, it's it's just not economically feasible to invest in in a battery that can that can help supply your your apartment. Even during a two, three hour power cut, I was told it was just not economically viable. And uh, when we talk about, you know, generate diesel generators, we've seen the cost of uh, of fuel triple uh, since the coup. So is there really much recourse for, for communities to gain some amount of independence? For sure. Yes. I think there, there are plenty of solutions out there that, um, that would allow communities to have a better electricity supply despite the current circumstances. The question is that the key aspect, the key variable here is, um, expectations. What do people expect? Because expectations will drive your willingness to pay. If you expect, let's say that you own a, a little business that's uh, drying um, Burmese cigars, uh, cheroots, and uh, you don't use a lot of electricity, but still you need some for the for the drying lights and, and, and things like that. Okay. Now, if I tell you that there's going to be really bad electricity supply for about two years, and then it's going to get better, what you might do is either scale down your production, you might get rid of some of your staff, you might reduce some of those um, variable costs. But you're still expecting the situation to get better in two years. And, and you're aiming for that and to be ready to scale back up when the power comes back um, in, a, in a stable fashion. 
But if I tell you, listen, um, the power situation is going to be really, really unstable and really bad and probably increasingly expensive on the grid for the foreseeable future, for the next five, seven years, you're not going to get uninterrupted power until 2030. That changes your calculation, right? It should change your calculation as a business. And it might also change your calculation as a household. It also changes the calculation for industrial zones. So I think the key here is about expectations. I think that we've gone through a a massive U-turn where we've gone from a situation where everyone in the country expected power to get better uh, in terms of you know, the grid expanding across the country, new power plants being built. Um, everyone expected it to just get better. To now, the reality is that it's going to be pretty bad for a long time with uh, some relief during the rainy seasons, but it's going to be bad. Like the, rain, the, the dry seasons are going to be really rough for the foreseeable future. We're in that moment where those expectations are right now being negotiated and, ad- and adjusted. Um, I think there are still a majority of people in the country who think that it's going to, who are still optimistic and the situation is going to uh, improve soon. Um, if only because I think a lot of people are still optimistic that there's going to be a change of regime. What I want to say is that in the current circumstances, it doesn't, it won't have much of an impact on the power sector, whether the political situation improves or not. If tomorrow the civilian government elected in the November 2020 elections is reinstated um, and the civilians are back in power, it would still take years to fix the damage done to the energy sector by the coup. It, It will take years. To, to fix that. It will take years to, break f- to bring funding back into the country. It will take years for, company, for companies to trust again um, and, and to lower their, their country risk, their, their, their perception of country risk. So the energy sector is very particular in that all these projects are big, expensive, and very, very slow to build and design, to design and build, sorry. What the coup did was that it it created this giant disruption, massive shock in a sector that now a lot has been destroyed overnight and it's going to get, take a very long time to rebuild. So what needs to happen right now among businesses in Myanmar is an adjustment in expectations about the quality of electricity supply. They can either adjust to that by investing in rooftop solar, they can adjust to that by investing in uh, in, in uh, mini hydro turbines. If they if there are rural businesses next to a river, um, they can adjust, uh, invest in plenty of alternative solutions. I think in terms of batteries, you are right that investing in large scale batteries, utility scale batteries, that's probably a bit too expensive uh, for a business. But there are thousands of people in Myanmar that in rural areas for whom the only access to electricity is battery storage. Uh, combined with a, a little solar panel or something like that, right? And so um, if I'm a household today, I would probably invest in that too. So yeah, it, it's about expectations, adjusting expectations. I think one thing that we haven't touched on is the mm-hmm. issue of gas, which I think 
the, the issue of gas is, is quite critical. On the gas side, um, there is a, a broader, a kind of a deeper crisis looming, which is that the gas fields that were being exploited in Myanmar, um, their production is going to go down very significantly over the next few years, with the exception of one. Now, there were plans to bring several new gas fields online and that those fields would be mostly producing for a domestic audience. So they would reduce their exports to Thailand and have more production for Myanmar. Because of the coup, those developments are not happening right now. And um, developing a gas field takes years. It takes five to eight years, more or less. But between the moment where you find the gas and the moment where it actually comes online. So there's going to be a challenge there. I'm not saying that gas is a great source of electricity. It's something I'm saying this was part of the original plan for generation of electricity in Myanmar. And that is no longer happening. And so right now we have a short-term crisis, which is everything that we've talked about up until now. But there is also a more long-term crisis about if Myanmar doesn't have more gas supply by 2026, 27, 28, there needs to be some kind of alternative to come online. And that can be dams. Uh, dams can be sometimes very unpopular, have, have pretty bad uh, environmental and social impacts um, if not done properly. And um, they take a very long time to build, right? Solar can be great because great solar can be built in a very short amount of, of time um, if you can sort out the problems of s supply. Can you import all the inputs? And also, um, can you have access to land because you need a lot of land for solar? But there's going to be these problems, right, um, that, that are looming in the background. So right now, uh, they need to address the problem of immediate shortages but there are going to be these long-term problems and everything in, in, in the energy sector is slow. Don't be tricked by what we've seen with, with, seen with Ukraine. It's exceptional to see such radical change happening uh, in energy policy. It, it's really once in a generation. In general, it takes decades to change the very, very massive and slow boat that is a country's energy policy. So th that needs to be addressed. The other thing is, there's going to be an issue for the NUG, which is what do you tell the people and what do you tell investors? The uncomfortable, very uncomfortable fact today is that in order for electricity supply in Myanmar to improve in the very short term, the only way that that can happen is through Chinese and Thai companies that are willing to build solar plants in Myanmar today. Right. That, that is a fact. They're the ones who are willing to operate in the country. They're the ones who are willing to go around the sanctions um, and, and, and build these power plants. What do we do with that? Do we, as, as, and, and what does the NUG do about that? And what does the NUG tell these companies about what happens if civilian rule resumes? Will those companies have to renegotiate the contracts? Will they be expropriated? What happens then? So there, there needs to be some very clear messaging on that sent by the NUG to all these companies. Um, and finally, 
again, expectations, expectations, expectations. For villages out there that thought that they were going to get electricity very soon, and it's not going to happen, then all those villages need to start thinking about, well, let's look for alternative solutions. If we have a river there, then maybe we could invest in something. We could pool resources together and invest in, in some kind of mini grid there. If we have, uh, if we're in the dry zone, maybe we can have some kind of mid-scale solar plants that can supply us. Like it's time to get creative now because if there's one thing that we know from the Tatmadol's past track record in energy, it's that it only cares about energy to the extent that it can extract rents from it. So that applies to gas, that applies to oil. It does not apply to solar. It does not apply to uh, hydro or gas. It does not apply to building grid connections. These are not priorities uh, for the Tamil. So it's time to get creative. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel, and in fact are. Thankfully, through our nonprofit organization Better Burma, we're able to ensure that all your donations successfully reach their intended target on the ground. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our donation fund, which is 100% directed towards supporting the democracy movement. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
Yeah, yeah, yeah.